Welcome to Ms. Interpreted, her podcast of public relations and strategic communications demystified by Kelly Fletcher and Fletcher Marketing PR. I think a lot of people watch House of Cards or uh, a lot of these political shows and think it's all, you know, backroom deals and handshake agreements and it's so cutthroat and it's so transactional. You know, everything that political PR professionals do is inherently, you know, politically motivated. But I'd say that there's a lot less of like the cutthroat kind of nature to this job than I think a lot of people would assume. It's very collaborative. It's very deliberative. Welcome listeners to the Misinterpreted Podcast. I'm Kelly Fletcher, CEO of Fletcher Marketing PR. And I'm here today with Allison Lester, our Fletcher Director of Media Relations. Hey, Allison, how are things in your world today? Things are going really well. I'm excited to be here. Thanks. Great. Well, I'm excited. I was just speaking to our guests offline about being excited to have him on because we've never had on a PR person who works on Capitol Hill before. So we're excited today to welcome Eric Olson. And we're going to be taking an insider's look into life as a comms director on Capitol Hill. Eric has been senior advisor and communications director for Congressman John Garamiti of California's 8th District in Northern California since 2017. Previously, he managed congressional campaigns and consulted on several presidential campaigns. His work as a senior PR communications staffer on Capitol Hill and for political campaigns has given him a really unique insight into the relationship between government and public relations, a very hot topic these days, right? So he has deployed a broad array of communications tactics throughout his career to communicate the complicated and multifaceted work that takes place in our federal government and reaches a huge, sizable audience. He's also worked with significant shows and outlets like 60 Minutes and Meet the Press, and he's managed highly targeted PR campaigns for a member of Congress that focused on getting into the weeds of an issue and connecting it to a specific constituency. So really interested in hearing about that too. Eric is a graduate of University of California, Davis with highest honors. And in his free time, he works to bring a greater level of awareness and insight into politics and how our government functions. That is a lofty thing to do in your free time, Eric. Welcome to Misinterpreted. Thank you so much, Kelly and Allison, for, for having me. I really, really appreciate the opportunity to, to speak with you both today. It's great to have you. Are you in D.C. right now? Yes, I am. Currently in Washington, D.C. I've uh, been living here, oh gosh, for six years now. Um, okay. Originally a West Coaster, so I feel like a local now. I feel like an okay, East Coaster. Okay, awesome. Probably. An East Coaster, like we are. Well, I'm really interested in your career trajectory and how you landed in political PR. You know, what drew you to that profession and, you know, what's it like to work on Capitol Hill? Yeah, absolutely. So I've always had like a penchant for politics. I've always been interested in it, really dating back to when I was in junior high. I was paying really close attention to the 04 and 08 elections. And so I volunteered on some campaigns throughout high school, got told a lot of unsavory things on the phone by, by people that you, you phone bank to, and still wasn't discouraged by that. I still cultivated my passion for politics. And then my other love in high school was broadcasting and journalism. I founded uh, my school's journalism department with an FCC licensed radio station in high school. So I was trying to find a way to blend my passion for communications and interest in politics and no better way to do that than political communications. So I found my way to the Hill my freshman year of college. I started interning for a congressional campaign 
for Congressman Garamendi. And over the course of my tenure at college, I just worked up, got field organizing roles, and then eventually managed his campaign right after I graduated. And then following that, moved to Washington, D.C., kind of started on the bottom rung in his office on the Hill and, and worked my way up from there to you know be his communications uh, director and run all of his PR for over half a decade now at this point. Wow, that's really impressive. And right out of college, you're already jumping into the fire. That it was. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I hit the ground running. Hi, Eric. I also came from a from a journalism passion background and was a journalist for 13 years. So I was really interested as soon as we booked you to be on the podcast to know in your career, in my career, I saw the relationship between politics and media change quite a bit. So I'm really interested to hear from you, from your side of things on how you saw that relationship really change. Sure. It definitely has changed from when I I started doing this back in 2014. Kind of broadly, I think, you know, the press is the fourth branch of government. I think, you know, the role of media in, in a democracy is, in my opinion, to preserve democracy. So therefore, you know, free independent press is kind of the fulcrum to a healthy and thriving democracy. And so elected officials in our roles as staffers for them also, we have a responsibility to maintain that objectivity in the health of an independent press and never impede it, while journalists have responsibility to kind of clarify complex and important issues of the public as objectively as possible, in my opinion. It's a symbiotic relationship. Politicians really need the press to get the word out uh, about their priorities and also to build their profile. And then obviously, journalists, political journalists need us for sourcing. So it really is, I think, some elements of PR in the private sector are less of a symbiotic relationship, whereas, you know, it really is that way here. Now, I'd say the relationship between politicians and the media depends on which outlet it is relative to which politician it is. So sometimes they're more adversarial relationships, sometimes they're friendlier. You really have the full spectrum kind of represented. And I will say, over time, as I've been on the Hill, it's relationships have become quite tight with the outlets that will cover you most favorably. And there's a lot of sharing of information, sourcing that that goes on. So it's an ever-evolving dynamic relationship, one that's integral to the functioning of our democracy and society, and one that's constantly in flux and really always changing. Yeah. It's um, interesting how the polarization of media outlets has, has grown right alongside the polarization of the parties and the American public. And when I read your email, I was looking through your bio and I was like, gosh, he's he represents the 8th District of California, which covers Northern California and perhaps most notably San Francisco. And it's hard to turn on the news lately without seeing some terrible story about San Francisco and, you know, the homeless people and the drug problem and the theft with the law of the $900 that you can take without it being a felony, you know, all those things. So like you're in right in the center of a hotbed of controversy. So how do you handle this constant stream of negative news out of your district? Yeah. So the, the 8th district of California is near San Francisco, but we don't actually represent San Francisco prosper. We represent um, kind of part of the East Bay. And so, okay, I got that wrong. The kind of local news, obviously, 
there is a lot of negativity that comes out of any you know congressional district, and this is definitely a problem that bears attention and addressing from any political staffer. And I would say you know every community faces its challenges, but the area that you know I have the fortune of uh, working for is highly rich in history, community, and I think the strength of the district really lies in its diversity of backgrounds and experiences uh, within the community. And you know I'd say that we combat a lot of the negative news and information that comes out of the area of the country that we're in by simply soliciting input from the community on the issues they want us to bring to the forefront and address. And also partnering with local organizations, local stakeholders and advocates, and, you know, really highlighting the voices uh, and also the work that's done locally to kind of strengthen the community uh, and resolve our issues. Cause you know, oftentimes a problem is presented in a very salient manner, kind of locally and nationally through various like press outlets, but it, you don't always necessarily see the resolution to those problems because they oftentimes take a long time. You know, right. you can talk years, decades. And so while you're engaged in that process, how do you keep people informed that there is attention being paid to the resolution of an issue and keep people obviously bought into providing their input, providing their voices to help contribute to the resolution. And then once you do reach a resolution, maybe it's days, months, years, decades, how do you get the word out? How do you tell that story with as big an impact as you know may have existed when the initial issue was brought to the forefront? So it's a challenge and you really have to use every tool in the toolbox as a PR professional to consistently get the word out and consistently track and message an issue like that. Yeah, yeah. So I often feel like spokespersons for politicians are reading from a script they didn't write. <laughs> I just wondered, especially White House press secretaries, and I know that's a, a whole different scenario, but how involved are you in crafting the message? Absolutely. Yeah, great question. So, you know, obviously different offices, different kind of answers to that question. But for me on Capitol Hill, I really do craft the messaging guidance for everything. We do. I provide talking points before any local or national interview my boss will conduct. And, you know, I have my own strategy and kind of format of how I do that. But, you know, it's also a two-way process. I'm not telling him this is what you have to say. It's a very deliberative, very engaging process. So I basically provide the advice, my best judgment recommendations using hopefully some data and facts-based research and some polling research. There's so much polling on public policy that's available for free that I'll try to elicit and draw from when I craft my messaging to know it's as effective as possible. And then I present that to him and uh, he might make edits and he'll take with it and roll with it however he wants. But the messaging in our office will originate from me. And it's a thing I spend a lot of my time uh, developing. I'll bet. So we talked earlier about kind of the polarization of things today. And, you know, there's there's obviously kind of this era of mistrust in the media, especially that national media where audiences aren't trusting what they're hearing on the news the way that they used to. So how as a PR professional do you navigate these trust issues to ensure credibility with with political candidates who who also get faced with a lot of skepticism? It's such an important question and one that I'm sure all of your listeners are grappling with in their own careers. You know, we live in an era where mistrust in the media and kind of our institutions 
seems to be a, a near high. And we even have kind of our own catchphrase and call sign to summarize it now in our society. I think in terms of, you know, what are the concrete steps a PR person can take right now to how to still use their work, their earned media efforts to successfully bolster their goals and messaging aspirations. I think it starts with being an advocate, being an advocate for quality media. Uh, you need to foster a functional and healthy, you know, working relationship with your office and members of the media. Far too often, things can become adversarial, and so you know, maintaining a positive, helpful disposition, kind of with the internal communications as you work with members of the press, but also advocating publicly as someone who has a voice in this industry for good quality, objective media that I think, you know, most people would agree they they want. You also need to, I think as PR professional, we can help educate. So that means increasing media literacy and differentiating for your clients between what objective, well-sourced media is and what biased opinion infotainment is and how, you know, Another huge thing is the role that social media plays uh, in all of this and how it's essentially a, leads to the democratization of information, but is also the Wild West for misinformation and navigating that. So media literacy, being advocates for increasing that. I would love if everyone in high school was taught a media literacy class. Uh, that would be great. And then also research, you know, going the extra mile as a PR professional to, and this I think is also really important, with the air of mistrust, Take that extra step to back up and source all the claims you're going to make in an interview and provide that extra detail, that extra kind of data to the outlets you're working with to kind of help them better source their information, back up the claims that are made in their article or their pieces to kind of ensure the objectivity of the story. That's so huge with national media. Whenever I book my boss to go, he goes on cable news 200 times a year on average. And... I always try to go the extra mile and what I know, I know the angle he's going to take in an interview. So I make sure to provide source info and data points to back up everything he's saying, because I find that, you know, the anchor might source that live on air to kind of just improve the objectivity of the claim, the statement, the piece. So those are just three things I think as PR professionals, we can all do. And in, in ensuring that, you know, our media, our institutions can be better trusted. I mean, that also that serves as a benefit to, you know, my principal, a member of Congress, and also, you know, applying that to the private sector, having a, a strong public perception of the media, having folks believe in the objectivity of the media that they consume also helps the work we do as PR professionals, because if people don't trust their media sources, they're going to tune out and then it becomes harder for us to find and speak to our audiences. Oh, absolutely. And I loved what you said about media literacy. Yeah, that sourcing piece is so important. Working in, in broadcast, we did a lot of research. Obviously, when people stopped, the mistrust in media started. And there's definitely a don't take my word for it approach to, to being able to provide sources that are trustworthy, reputable sources and newsrooms are so busy and producers are so busy and the anchors, especially on those 24-hour news networks, are on the desk for hours on end. So to be able to provide them with reputable sources that they can reference in the interview, it's a really smart approach. No, thank you. And yeah, I, I agree. I also think, you know, if, if you're trying to establish good uh, media relations, one of the best ways to do that is to be a good guest, provide data to back everything up. 
become the segment producer, make the segment producer's right. life easier. Right. Because then they go, oh, this person's great to work with. I want to circle back with them the next time something they're you know knowledgeable on is in the news. Right. Yeah. And what you said about media literacy, that's something I'd like to explore further because I'm constantly defending the existence of media in today's society, just among friends and family who think, who have this perception and on both sides, you know, in both major parties that the media is bad and that the media doesn't tell the truth. And sure, the media is biased. Like you said, there are certain outlets now that we know exactly where they stand and they're going to present the news in the way they present it. And they're on both sides. So if you don't consume lots of different media outlets and you don't fact check for yourself, it's put more work on the everyday person to be able to discern what is fact from fiction and news, but it's never been more important. And I love the idea of having a media literacy class and taught in high school or even middle school. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, hundred percent. Yeah. If you can do it throughout the course of someone's education, I think it would just be it would do wonders for our society, I, I truly believe. And I think it'd be helpful, especially in the era of AI. And yes. you have deep fakes coming out that are becoming so realistic Yeah, that, you know, we, I think we really need to take a collective pause and understand that uh, if we don't preemptively kind of educate folks on the implications of this and how to ensure that the they're getting objective information in the media they consume, then that will have a very deleterious effect on the functioning of our society. So, you know, we got to create a kind of a nationwide strategy for that and get it right. And, you know, it's also, I've worked with so many outlets where I'll send them something and they'll have me triple, quadruple, quintuple check it and provide so much background information. Those are the people I prefer working with because their articles become more comprehensive and better. But there's also a lot of people who just take you at face value. So, you know, it's it's an interesting terrain to navigate in. There's no two outlets really created equal. And, you know, oftentimes when, when newsrooms lose a lot of their funding, a lot of their revenue, then a lot of the content moderation, a lot of the fact-checking stuff kind of is first to go, you know, and that's, that's uh, something that should concern us all and something that I know that all these outlets are grappling with how they're going to address because for true journalists, kind of the base of their journalistic integrity is their objectivity. So I know that there's a lot of folks out there that are working overtime to ensure that's maintained and that the trust in their institution can still be maintained publicly. So Eric, I'm curious, you mentioned earlier in the interview that you get along very well with the media outlets that cover you favorably, or you develop great relationships with them. So I'm wondering what it's like between the other communications professionals there. Is there any contentiousness between comms pros, depending on which side of the aisle they're on? <laughs> yeah, no, it's a good question. You got any gossip for us? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I feel very fortunate. So we, you know, I get along with my colleagues on the other side of the aisle. I've led a lot of legislation and done a lot of joint press hits and endeavors with friends on the other side of the aisle. I will say oftentimes, you know, in this kind of era of our politics, our bosses might be feuding publicly in hearings on TV, etc. But even when that's the case, I've still maintained, you know, good working in, in personal relationships uh, with my colleagues on the other side of the aisle. It might be, you know, a war on Twitter, a war at a committee hearing during the day. 
But by night, you know, we're grabbing a drink together, we're having dinner together, and on the weekends, you know, we hang out. And I think everyone here does a very good job of putting those political differences besides them and trying to find some commonality in their personal lives. Obviously, you know, that's become harder and less common than it was kind of in recent years, but still exists. And, you know, for example, there was this bill that uh, we worked on last year called the Ocean Shipping Reform Act. The whole is a very technical trade related bill. The whole point of it was to address kind of the supply chain crisis that we were dealing with in the, you know, during the pandemic and Bay area democratic office worked with a Republican office from South Dakota, which two States that could not be more apart politically. And really there was an idea for legislation to address the supply chain issue that originated at a staff level. And because the two staffs had good personal relationships, we were able to design a bill, pitch to the bosses, get it done. You know, it was signed into law last year with, you know, over 200 Republicans and Democrats voting in favor of it. And the president of the United States mentioning it during one of his State of the Union speeches. And it really all originated because we had a good working relationship with that Republican office. And we found an issue that could unite the states, South Dakota and, and California. So that's kind of like a little inside scoop at how we can um, get along, work together with the other side of the aisle and find commonality despite a period of kind of unprecedented division in our national uh, political structure. That's really interesting. It's really good to hear too. So Eric, we're big on, you know, backing everything with research. So I'm wondering how much you use research to drive your messaging strategy. You mentioned earlier sending citable sources when you're going to do an interview. But beyond that, how much research do you do in order to support the messaging strategy that you're using? A lot. We get sent daily polling memos from our caucus and from the leadership here. So there are um, groups that, you know, we're constantly kind of means testing and polling our national party's priorities with to decipher which messages will you know, be received most favorably. So I definitely try to draw from that whenever possible. But Congress also has this amazing service called the Congressional Research Service, CRS. And it's a team of subject matter experts in their field that you can literally call up and say, I want to know everything about this issue. Please prepare this memo on this topic with this kind of sourcing. And they will do it on a very quick turnaround. So, you know, the way I see it is we have very unique tools at our disposal to ensure our messaging is always backed up and objective. So we'd be remiss in our responsibility as PR professionals for politicians if we didn't make use of those sources. So I try to back, I don't, I don't ever want my boss to make a claim that isn't verifiable because we always have the ability to back it up with data through kind of our offices and the work and the resources we have. Are you guys using AI for research at all? We haven't in my office, though I did notice there was a member of Congress who had Jat GBT write a speech for him mm. and deliver the speech on the House floor unedited to kind of make a point about AI. So, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if something like that, you know, could be incorporated into the work we do. We'll just have to see, but there's already some kind of percolation of that into the work we do here. Yeah. It's going to be interesting to watch and see how that all plays out. Yeah. Kind of in the same vein, but on the other side of things, 
after you've done the research and you've done the messaging, what data analytics and tools are you using to analyze the effectiveness of any sort of campaign or strategy that you guys put out? So, yeah, I mean, we, we really are kind of a jack of all trades operation on the Hill. So we're not specializing in one facet of PR. So yeah, I do social media, earned media, paid media, direct mail, paid social advertising. So we really have a lot of tools that we use to track how effective our messaging strategies are across every platform we use for our earned media to analyze the reach and kind of the quantifiable dollar per dollar value of it. We use media monitoring systems like critical mention, Cision. We also use social media analytics that the platforms themselves provide you to determine how salient one of our messages might be from an organic reach. And then that'll inform our paid social media advertisement strategy, you know, to identify the the top topics. And then, you know, we have an aggressive newsletter program that utilizes services like L2 to micro target the audience we're sending a specific message to. And then we had a full comprehensive report on every newsletter that we ever send in terms of open rate, click rate, et cetera. So we micro target everything, set our goals or quantifiable goals. And then we use four or five different data points and software is available to us to analyze and object, you know, put into empirical objective terms, how effective our messaging is or is not. Yeah, it's, uh, you use the same tools that we use in the agency world, pretty much, 100%. it sounds yeah. like. So I'm interested in what the biggest crisis you've had to manage so far. I would say the one that the biggest one for me, because if we got it wrong, it would literally cost lives was, oh, actually, right after I became the communications director, uh, we were having a town hall for about 3000 people in our district in the winter. And we got a call that there was a, a dam at the top of the northern part of our district that was being over flooded, overwhelmed with a bunch of rain we were getting. And the emergency spillway on that dam likely was going to be, it could be ruptured. And if that happened, it would have inundated an entire valley with really like you're talking a two or 300 year flood level event. And we're talking upwards of 60,000 people would have died immediately. Oh my gosh. And we were told at this town hall, this could happen tonight. So we had to stop the town hall, say who in the audience is from this part of our district, a few hundred hands go up. We explain what's happening. And we really worked for, I don't think I slept for 72 hours because we had to activate a crisis communication strategic plan. I developed around what happens when there's a natural disaster event imminent in your district. You know, what is the delineation of responsibilities on staff? What is the messaging we're getting out? How are we getting it out? What are the tools we're using? And we had to put that into, into action really a month after I wrote it. And one of the confounding factors was there was one single lane highway out of this community. So you had about 200,000 people all getting out at the same time on one road. And we were the highest ranking government official in the area. So this quickly became international news. And we were the primary sourcing info for every media outlet conceivable in the country and including many abroad as well. So we had to operate a minute by minute structure that I had thankfully developed through a crisis communication plan, but true break glass in case of emergency that was predicated on staffers having specific shifts, someone publicizing info on social media in real time. And there's a specific way you have to publish it. You, you know, in crisis communication, 
the most important thing to say at the end is I'm continuing to monitor the situation. We'll provide updates as they become available. Here's the resources that you can use your local office of emergency service to track this information yourself. So it was it was a, a true crisis that required very calm, collected demeanors to operate in. But at the same time, you know, we we're worried that literally the worst natural disaster in, you know, 10 years was potentially going to unfold on, on our hands. And luckily it didn't, but it was, it was close there for a minute. Wow. I can't even imagine. I'm going to have to go back and look that up. So it didn't actually end up happening, but did you evacuate everyone? Everyone in, I think three or four separate counties was told to leave and pretty much everyone did leave. And they, we were, I remember ending one night thinking, I think this thing's going to, going to burst. And I think a lot of people might die. And if they don't, their homes are gone. Right. So that was truly the most sobering. That's just in. Yeah. It's that reality. And then also just managing the same, but with fires Uh, coming from a Northern California office. And, you know, we didn't represent Paradise, California, but we represented the communities just south of it. And so there is a lot of work that we did pertaining to that and other pretty devastating fires over my years working in this job as well. So one of the purposes of this podcast and the reason that I wanted to launch it and the reason that it's called Misinterpreted is we like to dispel myths about our industry. And I'm just wondering, what is most misinterpreted about political PR and the profession itself? I think people think it's... I think a lot of people watch House of Cards or uh, a lot of these political shows and think it's all you know, backroom deals and handshake agreements, and it's so cutthroat, and it's so transactional. You know, everything that political PR professionals do is inherently, you know, politically motivated. But I'd say that there's a lot less of like the cutthroat kind of nature to this job than I think a lot of people would assume. It's very collaborative. It's very deliberative. And that is how I think it should operate. I also think, you know, a lot of people assume that whenever they hear an elected official or a politician speak that oftentimes it just, you know, kind of ad lib off the cuff. There's a lot of intentionality and research and data that goes into all of the work we do. And it's very, it's intended to be very methodical and very purposeful, and it's intended to be well-researched. But, you know, I think, it also needs to maintain a level of authenticity. So I think that's that's probably the myth or misconception that I would elicit is just, it's not House of Cards. It's more of like somewhere in between that and Veep. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Great analogy. And Eric, I can't thank you enough for being on the podcast today and for what you're doing to build bridges in Washington, D.C., among parties and among communication professionals that have different political viewpoints. I think it's such important work. And I know this information is going to be very valuable to our listeners. So how can our listeners follow up and follow you or find you on social media, Eric? Absolutely. Well, firstly, I also just want to commend you and thank you for for doing this podcast. And you have a treasure trove of information and best practices that you know make you successful in your career. And I think it's very commendable to to share those with your listeners. And so, thank you. Appreciate you having me on. And uh, in terms of how you can get in touch with me, I'm on LinkedIn, Eric Olson, E R I C O L S E N. I'm on Instagram at Eric underscore Olson four. And I'm on TikTok at Eric Olson 44. So if folks have any 
questions about this world and if you want to get involved in it, please let me know. I'm happy to help any way I can. That's incredible. Thank you, Eric. Listeners, don't forget to follow the Misinterpreted Podcast on social media as well. You can follow me on Twitter at KD Fletcher, and that's KD as in Kelly Dawn. And please follow the agency at Fletcher PR. We'll respond to your questions and comments. So post them using the hashtag Misinterpreted, and that's hashtag MS Interpreted. And for visibility's sake, don't forget to capitalize the PR. Thanks to our sound engineer, Chris Hill of Knoxville-based HumblePod. We appreciate you, Chris. You can find him at HumblePod.com. Thanks again, listeners. Until next time. Thanks for joining us on Misinterpreted, Public Relations Demystified. You can keep up with the latest on the podcast at FletcherMarketingPR.com and on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll see you next time 